Thank you. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me now to Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5? If you don't, no worries. We're going to put the passage on the screen in a, in a minute. This morning, we are beginning a new mini-series entitled Finding Favor, How to Live a Blessed Life. So a lot of the Christianese lingo um, that the church throws around sounds like gibberish to outsiders, but this idea of blessing is one that's gained a lot of traction even in the unchurched world. Maybe you remember that popular hashtag that's still trending, I think, hashtag blessed. Right? Who doesn't want to be blessed? Indeed, some churches and whole denominations have reduced the Bible to a mere instrument of blessing for personal health wealth, and happiness, the prosperity gospel. But throughout this series, we want to ask the question, is health, wealth, and happiness even what it really means to be blessed? We realize we need to go to God's word for our understanding of what it means to live a blessed life. And so when we do, what we find is actually this phrase, blessed is the one who is repeated over and over and over again in scripture. And so Gary has picked out for us just four passages uh, of, of blessed is the one who that we're going to study together in the month of November. And as usual, he gave me the most important. So would you stand with me this morning as you're able for the reading of God's word from Psalm 32 verses 1 through 5. I'll read it for us. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. I'll read it for us. It's okay. You can take a break. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, <clears throat> before you start tracing patterns uh, through your bulletins, let me explain. That is not a maze that I've drawn for you there. It is not a... Um, it is not a uh, college basketball bracket, Mark Kushina, I'm sorry. Um, what you have there is two separate columns, okay? There are basically two types of people in the world. And so we often differentiate between uh, people in, in, in categories, male and female, Republican and Democrat, Cardinals fans and nincompoops, right? <laughs> and the Bible itself affirms that these differences between people do actually exist and they do actually matter. No, we are not actually all the same. God makes us different because he values diversity, and we should too. So we just wrapped up a sermon series looking at spiritual gifts the past four weeks, and we realized, we learned, God doesn't make two billion hands in the worldwide body of Christ. There aren't two billion eyes or two billion gallbladders, right? No, biblically, distinctions between people matter, and this morning, we're going to exam, uh, examine the distinction that matters most of all between people. Not good people versus bad people. Not sinners versus holy people. No, according to Scripture, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there are two very important types 
of sinners who are differentiated by what we do with our sin, what our response is in the face of the reality of our sin. And so I want to examine both of these types of sinners in turn, but before we do so, we need to make sure that we're all on the same page about what we even mean when we use the word sin, okay? So most of us, when we hear the word sin, I think we think of bad stuff that we do, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, murder, adultery, the Ten Commandments that we've been studying through in the New City Catechism classes at nine o'clock together. And yes, those are all sins. But the problem is that if we really want to drill down to a definition of sin, we've got to dig much deeper than that because the roots of sin are much deeper. And the problem of sin is much more pervasive. And so we've got to go back to sin's origins in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. There's something really fundamental about the nature of sin that God wants us to understand from this example of Adam and Eve. Just what is at the root of their sin? Is it pride? Is it idolatry, envy, doubt, distrust of God? Yes, all those things. But I think that more than anything, what is at the very heart of their sin and what has been at the heart of all sin in the world since that day is a rejection of God as God. Sin is the refusal on our part to let God be God and instead to insist on taking his place on the throne for ourselves. So the original sin that the Bible talks about, that we've all inherited, is simply our genetic, innate, natural need and drive from birth to be the one calling the shots, to be in control, to run the show to be the sovereign authority that all other subordinates must answer to, including God. If we believe in a God at all, in our sin, it is only insofar as he exists to serve us and do our bidding. That is sin, rejecting God as God. Okay, now, when we understand sin that way, can you begin to see just how massive this sin problem is? Not just in the world, but in in our hearts. Let's make this personal. Imagine that God was actually God in your life all the time. He reigns supreme on the throne of your heart. How different would your life look than it looks today? That's who God was for Jesus, right? So let's just make that comparison. What is the gap between you and Jesus? That is sin. That vast chasm is what we call sin in in Christianity. So that is why Christianity, Scripture, says there is none who does good, no, not even one. Because when we define good not as better than most people, but according to Jesus' definition that there is only one who is good, God alone, so stop comparing yourselves to each, uh, each other. The only comparison that is relevant here is you to me, to God, to the standard. Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. When we compare ourselves to him, we begin to get a sense of the infinite gulf that exists between us and a holy God. And so we quickly discover that even our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Why? 
because even the motivations behind them are selfish. They're self-centered. To feel good about myself, to get in God's good graces so he'll love me a little more, so he'll bless me a little more. So, in a world that is increasingly viewing people as basically good, we don't need God, we just need more self-realization for human flourishing and progress. Christianity flies in the face and offensively declares, no, actually, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, what is rightfully owed to you and me by virtue of our sin, is death. Not because of how relatively bad or not so bad I feel like my sin is, but because of how absolutely holy and perfect God is. Ravi Zacharias says this, The severity of a crime is not just dictated by the nature of that crime, but by the identity of the one against whom it is committed. If I spit in your face, you leave the church. If I go out and spit in a police officer's face, I get locked up. If I spit in the face of the President of the United States, I'm pretty sure he would pursue the death penalty uh, for blasphemy or treason or something. So if sin amounts to spitting in the face of God, what is the rightful penalty? The God of the universe, the fair wages of our sin, the Bible says, is eternal death. We all rightfully stand condemned. And so that is the first type of sinner, the person who gets what they deserve, condemnation. Write that on the left-hand column, header there, the big bold blank. The one who gets what they deserve, Psalm 32 is going to give us four ways in verses three through four, four insights here into the nature of what it means to be condemned by our sin. So look at these with me, if you would. Number one, the condemnation of our sin brings shame. Verse three, when I kept silent, when I kept my sin to myself because I was too ashamed to admit it out loud, when I held on to it, my bones rotted away. That's a powerful image, isn't it? That's, it's a powerful metaphor because shame is a powerful emotion. What's the very first thing that Adam and Eve experience in the garden as a result of their sin? We hear in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 3, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Those are the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Shame enters the world for the first time. What was life like before they made that fateful decision? Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and what? We're not ashamed. Can you imagine that? I mean, just pause and, and consider what that would be like in your life, to be naked and unashamed. To stand not just physically, some of us are uncomfortable with our bodies too, but not just physically, but completely emotionally, mentally, spiritually naked. If you were somehow every thought, every feeling, every impulse you wore externally out there for all to see, like that awful uh, movie, What Women Want, where, if you remember that, where Mel Gibson falls in the bathtub and electrocutes himself and naturally wakes up the next day um, understanding all of women's thoughts. He can, he can hear them. 
If that was your reality, right, and everyone, your, your, your thoughts, your emotions, your impulses were all publicly out there for everyone to see, completely naked and vulnerable, and yet unashamed. Unashamed. Can you imagine that? I will tell you, I cannot imagine that. Our, our life group was uh, swapping high school stories around the fire pit this last week, and even in my edited versions, I am embarrassed by the person I have been and by the things I have done. Sin gives birth to shame, and shame is corrosive. It's like hydrofluoric acid for the soul. David says, my bones, my innermost being, corroded away. How much of our lives, friends, are spent searching for fig leaves? to cover over our nakedness, our shame. Money, success, material things to hide behind, our performance at work, our relationships, our family, our sense of humor, this happy-go-lucky self-image that we project to the world when secretly inside we are wasting away. All these things we grab and try and hide behind to cover over our nakedness, our shame, because of sin. Secondly, shame and sin leads to complaining. What's the very next thing that we hear Adam and Eve do of after scrambling for fig leaves? They point fingers. Verses 12 and 13, the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the woman says, The serpent, he deceived me and I ate. So Adam says, God, it's her fault. She says, God, it's the snake's fault. And in Adam's case, it's not just her fault. Whose fault is it? Oh, God, the woman who, by the way, you gave me, God, if it hadn't been, I mean, God, if you thought a little harder, maybe if you hadn't made her in the first place, we wouldn't be in such a mess, God. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So David paints this paradoxical picture for us of simultaneously keeping all of our sin private and shamefully hidden, and yet publicly we moan and groan and complain all day long. Why? Well, because the shameful internal corrosion of our souls produces this disgusting external byproducts that have to get released somehow in our behavior. So I think of those massive industrial factories that you drive by on the highway and you see the disgusting smoke billow out of the top. Our groaning and griping, our complaining, our criticism of others is the external byproduct of this internal chemical reaction produced by our shame. Why do bullies bully people? Because they hate each other. They hate themselves, right? They hate themselves. But I ask you this morning, Aren't we all bullies? Don't we all do this to one another? Don't we all, when we feel that same twinge of shame, isn't our natural reaction to redirect, to blame shift, to point fingers, to complain and criticize? We can't stand to look in the mirror at the log in our own eye. And so instead, we hold up the microscope to others' eyes so we can try and find the speck that we can focus on instead. And those of us who are married know this shame-then-blame cycle especially well, don't we? 
Polly asks me to watch Ellery for a minute so she can get dressed. She leaves the room. I look down at my phone for literally 10 seconds. I look up. Ellery is now wearing whatever was left on her plate before that. Polly comes back in the kitchen. She gets upset with me. What is my reaction? I feel shame that I messed up, but I don't want to go there because that's difficult. That's painful. And so instead, I immediately pivot to blame her. Well, why'd you have to go get changed in the first place? I mean, didn't you know I have important things to do here, like check this post about which Halloween villain I'm most like? I mean, why, why do you need to get changed in the first? I, last time I checked, it's a free country. You can go to Target in your bathrobe. Right. I'll let that sit in. Worst of all, worst of all, just like Adam, we complain against God, don't we? God, why did you make me with this tendency towards sin in the first place? God, there must be something wrong with you to make me with such a massive design flaw. God, if you are really all-powerful and you really desire what's best for me, why do you continue to let me struggle with this same sin over and over and over again? God, what's wrong with you? So we blame shift, we finger point, we complain. Number three, the condemnation of sin brings hostility. What does it do to my relationship with Polly when I turn her justified complaint back around on her to try and cover over my own shame? Well, what did it do in Adam and Eve's case when they point fingers at each other? What did it do to their relationship? What did it do to all of their relationships? See, there's four basic relationships that we all have. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the world, and our relationship with ourselves. Now listen to how the Bible describes each of those four relationships for Adam and Eve before the fall. The relationship with God. God blessed them with each other. Adam says, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The two were one flesh. The world. God said, let them have authority over the earth, and it was very good. Perfect harmony with creation. And finally, they were naked and unashamed. Now, Compare that, those four relationships, epitomized by that beautiful Hebrew word shalom, peace and harmony, things exactly as they should be, wholeness. And then in an instant, all of it changes with one bite of the fruit. Now we hear, in the relationship with God, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. With each other, God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's strife, animosity between them. The world, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to sweat and have to work hard to break up the ground, and it's going to grow thorns and thistles. And then themselves, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. Shame, shame for the first time. In an instant, absolute shalom becomes utter chaos discord, hostility, because the wages of sin isn't just spiritual death, but relational death as well. Sin kills relationships. Most significantly, kills our relationship with God. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, Psalm 51. Even when we think that our sin is primarily horizontal, 
The Bible says what is actually most relevant about sin is always vertical, the rift it causes between us and God, because that's someone he created in his image, his beloved child, that we just judged or belittled, condemned, disregarded. And as a father, if you do that to my daughter, So here's how the Apostle Paul describes the hostility that our sin causes between us and God. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then he says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. For you who were once far off, there was a dividing wall of hostility. Sin kills relationship with God and leaves us, number four, broken. Ultimately, hostility leads to brokenness. David says, My strength was dried up as if by the heat of summer. He says, I'm a broken man. I've got nothing left in me. And what was the end result of Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3? We hear, Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. Paradise lost, destroyed broken. Sin leads to shame, leads to complaining, leads to hostility, leads to brokenness. Things will never, ever be the same again after the fall in Genesis 3. Or will they? Is it possible that we serve a God whose power to fix is greater than our power to fail? Is it possible that we serve a God whose power to heal is greater than our power to hurt? Whose power to redeem and repair and restore is greater than our power to ruin? Friends, don't you want to believe in that kind of a God? I would just speak for myself this morning. I need to believe in that kind of a God. The person I've been and the things I've done, I need to believe in that kind of a God. I need to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection are true, not just in some abstract theological sense, but personally true for me in my life. I need to know that broken things can be made whole, that broken people, broken relationships can be made whole. I need to believe that dead hearts can beat again, can be brought back to life. I need that to be true for me. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross, we who once fell condemned can now stand confident before the throne of God because of what he's done for us. With confidence, that's the second type of sinner, the confident 
There are only two kinds. You are either condemned by your sin or you are confident in Christ's salvation from it. Hebrews 4 tells us since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Ooh, that's a good word. Hold on to that one. We're coming back to that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with what? Confidence. Say it with me. With what? Confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Confidence means security. A thousand years before Jesus, David could have only dreamed of the hope and the security that we now have in Christ. Because the blessing that David talks about in God's forgiveness in Psalm 32 has to be read with a giant asterisk beside it. The fine print in the Old Testament is we are blessed and forgiven until what? The next time we sin again. Until we screw up again. And then then we rightfully stand condemned again. And then it's back to the temple again to offer another sacrifice again to atone for my sin again. That's why in the Old Testament, this is how Hebrews 10 describes it, every priest would stand daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again, which can never take away the sins, not permanently. Old Testament sacrifice was like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father and said, It is finished, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Is that good news? Friends, we can approach the Father with confidence today because we can know that it is impossible for us to outsend Jesus. You can't outsend Jesus. You can't do it. A single offering for all time. That means all sins, past, present, and future, covered, wiped away. And so, what does his sacrifice accomplish for us specifically? Four things. Number one, first, our shame gets covered. This is the right-hand side of your bulletin now, confident, Sinners know that first our shame gets covered. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Not by the temporary, superficial fig leaves that we grab and try and hide behind. No, we can now be clothed eternally in the righteousness of Christ. Covered. That's what the, the Hebrew word kafar means. It means to cover, to atone. God's wrath against sin in Scripture is often described as a raging fire for good reason. And what do you do when you're grilling and the grease from the hamburgers is dripping down and causing a fireball that's about to set your roof line on fire? You cover the grill, right? You, you limit the fuel supply, the oxygen. But the problem with our sin is we're working with an unlimited fuel supply. We sin all the time. If not for some eternal, perfect covering, our sin would stoke the fires of God's wrath constantly. Sacrifices of the Old Testament covered the grill, but they couldn't put out the flame. Jesus' atonement is like the rainstorm we had last night. It's like the rainstorm we had last Tuesday after the fire pit that I mentioned at Life Group. Any embers that were still left burning after our fire pit were completely extinguished. 
1 John 4.10, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just a fancy word that means Christ covered and extinguished the flame of God's righteous anger against sin once and for all. Secondly, on the cross, the debt that we incurred by our sin was paid. David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In our sin, we like to count. We want to keep score. God, you've done this and this and this, and we gripe and we complain. And God might do well to ask us, really? Do you want to go there? You really want to make a list of grievances here? Okay, well, let's see. Where should I even start? How about conception? Psalm 51, 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, in, my, in sin did my mother conceive me. Folks, God's list of grievances against us, our sin, starts before we were born. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14, 12, Each of us will give an account of himself before God. So if we are keeping count, this is how the Bible describes the scoreboard. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? So, Imagine this scene with me. It's your day in court. You are standing before the judgment seat of God the Father. And David says, in our sin, we stand so overwhelmingly guilty and condemned that we're actually not standing at all. There is no standing before God the Father. We are in a pile on the floor, balled up in the fetal position. Our entire skeletal system completely corroded away by shame and guilt and sin, simply awaiting the fall of the fateful gavel and the judge's just verdict of condemned, guilty, sinner, when in steps your intercessor. Not your attorney, because there's no arguing your way out of this. We stand rightfully condemned. We deserve the death penalty, but Jesus says, I'll pay it. Here, take me instead. Our debt, eternal death and separation from God is paid in full. Acquitted, forgiven, purchased for us. 1 Corinthians 6, we were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed, you were bought back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, from sin and darkness with the precious blood of Christ. Third, where there was once hostility, now Christ brings reconciliation. We have been reconciled with God the Father. Christ's blood purchases for us not just the forgiveness of our debt, not just an erasing of the old, but a creation of a new, restored relationship with God himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
His righteousness for my sin. His heavenly inheritance for my rightful condemnation. His perfect relationship with God the Father for my hostile, broken relationship. Traded on the cross. Substituted. Reconciled. And so remember that earlier passage from Ephesians 2 that I read where Paul described our hostility with God. Here's the fill in the blank. Here's the, where I had ellipsis, the dot, dot, dot. Here's what's really in the middle. You were, past tense, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith Friends, that is the kind of restored relationship with a holy, perfect God that no amount of feebly attempted good deeds on my part could ever earn me. It is only through faith in what Jesus has done for me on the cross by his grace. Lastly, where there once was brokenness, Christ brings restoration. We are restored, repaired, made whole again. So David says in verse 2, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Sin is like a hairline fracture in our soul. It seems like such a little crack. But while bones sometimes heal themselves, souls do not. That crack grows because the entire structural integrity of our spirit has now been compromised. And so David says, our souls need to be made whole again. No deceit, no sin, mended, restored. How does that happen? Well, David tells us in his most famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. But here's the thing. The healing that David experienced was just a shadow of the restoration that can now be ours in Jesus because now the old can be made completely new. Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Dead can be brought to life. That is not just restorations, friends. That is resurrection. But here's the key. This is the key to all of this. The difference between the condemned sinner of verses 3 and 4 and the confident one of verses 1 and 2. It all hinges on verse 5, on confession. David says, When I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity, when I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So in your bulletins, in that open space I left you, right in the middle there, the bridge between the condemned sinner and the confident believer, would you write in big, bold words in your bulletin, confession, right down the middle. 
1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But here's the thing, friends. It's not just about confessing who you are. It's not just about confessing your brokenness, your need for help. The Bible says it's also about who you confess Jesus to be. Because it's not enough to know that you're sick. You have to know where to go for the cure. Jesus says, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. But you've got to first confess your sins, confess your illness, confess that you need me, and then confess your trust and your hope in the good physician for your healing. Repentance and faith, that is salvation. Repent and believe, Jesus says. Jesus says, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So it all hinges on your confession this morning, on your answer to the most important question that you will ever be asked in your life. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you say he is? Let's pray. I'm going to invite Scott to come up and play in the background for us while we pray. Would you just spend a moment responding to the gospel that you've heard this morning? Who do we say you are, Lord? That's the question before us this morning. We've got a lot of answers for that question. There's a lot of different answers to that question. You're a prophet, you're the new Elijah, you're a good teacher, rabbi, you're an example to try and follow. We know the rest of that passage in Matthew 16, Peter's rightful confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus, that's who we need this morning. We need nothing less than the Son of the living God. Our sin doesn't need a good example. The weight of our sin and our condemnation does not need a good prophet, a good teacher. We need a savior. And so if there's anyone here this morning who has never confessed their need for you, their sinfulness, their brokenness, their hostility with you, 
their shame, their guilt and condemnation. If there's anyone here who's never confessed that, I pray that you would move, not in my words, but in the, your, the power of your word this morning, Father. Would you convict someone's heart this morning? Open their eyes to see you for the first time, to see themselves truthfully for the first time as a sinner, broken, sick, needy, and not just themselves but you, to see you for who you are, Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, the good physician, the only one able to take our brokenness, our sin, our shame and guilt and condemnation and pay it in full on the cross and put it to death and say it is finished and mean it. Father, if there's anyone here who is tired of trying to pay back their own debt penny by penny against a billion-dollar debt, Would you help them see the blank check that you offer us this morning on the cross? And would you give them the strength and the courage to simply surrender and accept your offer of grace? God, your word tells us we're so sinful we can't even come to you of our own accord. We need you to bring us to you. We're like the paralytic who needed his friends to lower us through the, through the roof. Jesus, we need you to bring us to God the Father. Would you give that person the power to respond to the conviction of your spirit in our hearts right now and simply surrender and give up and say, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm done trying. I'm done trying to earn my salvation. Father, for the rest of us, so many of us who have maybe made that decision, life-changing, eternity-changing decision in the past at some point, would you remind us this morning of the truth of your promise that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation because of our confession of you to be our Savior. Now we can be confident of our standing with the Father. We don't have to deal with the enemy's lies and, the, and battle the insecurities and doubts that toss us to and fro. We don't have to deal with the questions of, oh, have I really surrendered? Have I really, do I have enough faith? No. If we have truly, if we've given our hearts to you, you keep those who you save. We thank you for that confidence, for that security, for that hope. But Father, we still sin. We still mess up. We still deal with shame. So if there's anyone here this morning who just needs to confess some sin that's been weighing heavy on their heart this past week, this month, for a long time now maybe, and just needs to surrender that and lay it at the foot of the cross, They've been holding on to it and their shame has caused hostility, animosity and bitterness, complaining, 
resentfulness in their heart, would you just give them the power and the strength to lay it down at your feet this morning, at the foot of the cross, and to know that when you said it is finished, you meant past, present, and future. That sin has already been covered. Jesus, we thank you that our salvation is not up to us. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. We give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray.